Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Mallory Cooper has written or co-written about 90 novels, with most of those coming in the last three years as a full-time author. That's a lot of books, but it was the work done in the decade prior that made all of this productivity possible. Despite her success, she was prepared to risk it all in order to fully embody living with authenticity, wholeheartedly embracing who she is and coming out as a trans woman in May of 2019. Instead of losing her friends and fan base, she's been experiencing even more connection and success by living without walls. Well, Mallory Cooper, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you said yes to being on the show. I had a chance to hear you on a couple panels on the 20 Books to Vegas conference, and a couple of things you said tweaked my ear enough to remind me that I should invite you to be on the show, so I'm glad you said yes. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I had, I had a lot of fun at that conference. It was, it was a really good time. Yeah, and so for people who may not know who you are, what would you like to say about yourself? Uh, well, I'm, I'm mostly known for the science fiction that I write, um, at least amongst readers. I write under M.D. Cooper and create a universe called Aeon 14 that has over 90 novels in it now. And then I also do um, a lot of author um, uh, marketing help. I wrote a book called Help My Facebook Ads Suck. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my wife and I have two more coming out as well. So we're uh, books uh, helping authors. So we're trying to take everything we've learned over the last few years and, and help other folks with it and pay forward as much as we can. That's awesome. So, wow, you've been pretty busy, I take it. Um, how many of those 90 plus books that you've written were in the last, say, four years? Um, 87 of them. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine somebody listening and, and having their mind blown a little bit. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah not all my author or listeners are you know from our circles so right yeah it's really it's really quite interesting that a lot of authors back in the days of yore used to write this much it was only like in the 70s, 60s and 70s that this weird slowdown started to happen hmm. um back in the 20s um i think it was kevin j anderson it could be someone else but they have an article a blog post called pulp speed and it's about how authors back in the 20s were writing a um, hundred books a year in some yeah. cases. Wow. Just, just pumping out an amazing amount of, of, of amazing quantity of stories. So it's, 
it's something that I, I read that and I thought, well, gee, if those guys can do it on crappy typewriters and or by hand, I'm sure right. I can pull it off, you know. Right. Can you imagine a hundred hundred stories by hand? Oh the, the arthritis. <laughs> yeah. Boy, go back in time and be like a, a massage therapist for hands. Right. Just sell hand braces to all those people and make a mint doing it. Right. Be the new robber baron of the century. Yeah. My next time travel book. But so what are you doing? What are you up to right now? Like heading into 2020? So I, uh, in, in 2018, 2018 was sort of the banner year for my writing. I did, um, but I have some co-authors too. So it's not just all me solo doing all those books, although my co-author books do take a fair bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, cause when you're, I'm writing in one massive universe, so continuity is really important. So like, so co-author books take, take just as much work as a regular book, but they still help with ideas, right? Like it's much easier mm-hmm. to edit something that's already been written than it is to come up with the whole thing yourself. So I, mm-hmm. they certainly are accelerators, but we did 44 in 2018. Um, I slowed down quite a bit last year. I actually haven't tallied the books or the word counts from last year, which I should do because I kind of like to do it just to reflect. But I think it was around 24 books last year. Mm. Um, and this year I plan to do um, probably 30 to 35, I'm ramping it back up again. So I'm in the midst of, of getting that going. I've already written one book this year. Um, and I hope to have at least another one, possibly two more done by the end of January. That's pretty exciting so i can imagine people listening yeah. going hey you're slowing down only 24 books last year i know it's nuts right why would i do that yeah so what was different about last year um well your your readers might pick up my, my voice but i'm transgender and last year is when i came out and that con- ended up consuming a lot of a lot of headspace for a lot mm. of years there was yeah times where it was there was enough going on in my life that it was very hard to, to sit down and have the focus to do creative work. Um, on top of that, I also last year, um, it was sort of both these things sort of happened together as I just, I'd gone into the year deciding I want to do more public appearances and public speaking and, and going out to both more author cons and more reader conventions. Mm. Um, and, and also once I was sort of out as myself, I actually found it way more enjoyable um, to do all of that. So I was away from home. Um, and some, there was some vacation time in here, but away from home for three months last year. Wow. But yeah, so that affected my, my writing speed a fair bit as well. So this was a pretty big year. Yeah, 2019 will, will definitely be a year I'll remember forever. Wow. And so I, my wife and I both had a chance to read your, your book about that process. Um, not a sci-fi book. Oh, my, my <laughs> book about coming out. Yeah, it's called How Wearing Leggings Changed My Life. Yeah. Yeah, we both enjoyed reading it. I I love how you use that word authenticity. And what does that <laughs> word what does that word mean to you? Uh it means it means having I mean I believe that um being authentic is the most empowering thing that you can do for yourself. Um so much of what we do in our day-to-day lives and how we behave is is really wrapped up in fear of a failure, fear of being judged by other people, fear of not fitting in. Um, and it causes us to hold back and, or to sort of remake ourselves into what we think other people want us to be. Mm. And I came to the realization, and I have this conversation with a lot of other trans people too, but I came to the realization that if the people in my life can't love me for who I really am, mm-hmm. then why do I have those people in my life? You know, if they're mm-hmm. the sort of people that would reject the real me, 
why would they be in my life? And, and what I realized as well, and this sort of comes into in my mode of dress, I like wearing, wearing outrageous outfits. I wear a lot of cat suits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Is that, um, is that you, if you want to really, if, and this, this is more for me than for other people, other people may express themselves in different ways, but for me to really be who I am and to be authentic, I have to have um, the right attitude. I have to, and by that, I don't mean like I have to be like pushy and in people's face, but I have to own what I am. So I have to, I can't go out, I can't be authentic, but also sort of be simpering about it. I have to be authentic and own it and, and go out there and be proud of what I am and not Mm -hmm. say like, okay, here I am and I'm ashamed and it's okay if you put me in the corner, but say, no, here I am and I'm proud of it and, and I'm, I'm going to be center stage. Um, and, uh, there's, I can't remember her name right now, but this woman has, she's done some Ted talks on this. I think her name's Bryn Brown or something like that. Brene Brown. Yeah. Brene Brown. Yes. Um, she actually done a bunch of research on these, on similar topics. And one of my other sayings I have is, have is I say, like say I'm living without walls. Yeah. I'm very um, open about everything I've gone through in all aspects of my life. I'm sure you've read my books. So you know this for sure that I, I really don't hold back. In fact, when I was editing, I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying all these things to mm-hmm. strangers. Um, but, but living without walls makes you completely vulnerable. But yeah. in doing that, it makes you stronger than you could ever be in mm-hmm. any other way. Because instead of hiding, you're standing out there um, completely vulnerable. And an amazing thing happens. Instead of everybody looking at you, because you fear at first, and the fear is what keeps you from, from doing this. You need the authenticity to first stand up. And mm-hmm. then once you're living without walls, without that fear, what actually happens is that everybody else looks at you, and instead of hating you, they actually admire what you're doing mm-hmm. because whether or not people are trans, whether they're, you know, they're gay, whether or not they, they, they just want to change careers and they've always been told they have to have a certain type of career, um, whether they want to dye their hair pink, whatever it is, um, they all, everybody has a thing that they want to do, but they're afraid that they can't. Mm-hmm. So when they see people actually doing it, then they say, wow, I admire that. I'm impressed by that. I want to emulate some part of that person's behavior. And, and that actually ends up becoming your protection when you're standing there, you know, mm. completely naked is that you don't need to protect yourself by being open. Everybody else around you, their acceptance becomes your safety and your protection. Right. So it sounds like you're creating a lot of connection, authentic connection with yeah. others by doing that. It, it's been, it's been an unbelievable year. When I transitioned, I came out on May 31st, I was fully expecting um, my career to be over mm. um, I was expecting my friends to abandon me, abandon me. I mean, I wasn't expecting it, but I sort of had prepared myself like this could happen. This could mm-hmm. be the end, mm-hmm. um, but I had to do it anyway. And the exact opposite happened. And it's been, that's that amongst above anything has been such a learning experience for me that, that, um, that like, like being authentic and being true to myself has actually been the thing that's opened the most doors in my entire life. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a really powerful lesson. And yeah. Yeah. And so what is that starting to look like for you heading into this new decade? Um, well, I mean, I, I, th- I think the great thing is that um, it's letting me do all the things I wish I ever could have done with my life mm. and also still being able to be a full-time author and, and achieve all of those goals and dreams too. It's, it's basically like, like 10-year-old me <laughs> wanted to be an author, wanted to be a girl, and wanted to wear outrageous things like cat suits at conventions. And now I'm doing all of that. And it's sort mm. of surreal. That's but I guess so the thing I want to do, now that I have that, the next thing I want to do is I want to pay it forward as much as I can in every way possible mm. and, and help other people um, as much as I can. Um, well, still, I'm, while still writing a thousand books. 
<laughs> so have you, you know, tangential to that, have you noticed any like shift in your storytelling since you're, you've started living without walls and started learning some of these lessons? I think there, there has been the, um, one of the things is when I wrote my very first, the very first book in my AM 14 universe, it wasn't the first one I published, but it was the first one I wrote. I, um, I decided to write my, write these, I wrote these characters a certain way, which was, a, and some, some of them were actually very sexual characters and there was, there was some eroticism and stuff like that in the book. And some of it wasn't, it was an outlet for me trying to understand um, what I was. Hmm. And when I wrote that, first wrote that book, I, I actually wrote it and then I rewrote all those parts and took it all out. And then before I, I published it, I rewrote them again and put all of that back in because I really wanted to reflect um, who I was and what I believed and how I felt. And so in many respects, a lot of my, my writing has always been from the, it's always represented the sorts of, of um, I want to say like I'm not writing porn or anything that I just feel like I was, back then I was like worried like, should I write like a super straight laced um, evangelical Christian novel or should I write mm. a novel that explores more, you know, there's, there's lesbian people, there's, there are people who, um, who have non-standard relationships and stuff like that. So it's sure. that, that's the sort of expression I have in the stories. Um, so I feel like in many respects, I've actually always really represented, um, you know, LGBT people really well, re represented a lot of minorities really well, represented people, um, sort of getting to be themselves and not being judged by their peers has always been really a really big theme in my books. So mm. that part didn't really change. Um, and hasn't changed, but one part, the one part that really has changed is, um, I have far greater empathy for marginalized people than I ever have before, because there's, there's certain things you just can't get until you're in a certain situation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I grew up in Can Western Canada. Um, I didn't grow up in a rich family, but we, we, we never really had to worry about food being on the table or anything like that. And, um, I've, I've, I'm, I'm a relatively intelligent person, so I never actually had to worry about getting a job. In fact, the longest I've ever gone without having a job was a day. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've never not gotten a job that I applied for it. So I sort of like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have life, everything handed to me on a silver spoon, but I never really had a lot of struggle. Um, and no one ever really, um, and on top of that, no one ever judged me for being what I was, right? You know, I never had anyone look down at me and say, oh, well, you're less than everybody else because you're a, you know, you're a, a blonde haired, white, blue eyed, white male. Um, you know, I never got that. And, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that there are certain things I never experienced because of my particular situation in my upbringing. And mm -hmm. when you come out as transgender, um, you immediately discover that there are people out there who will now hate you just for being what you are. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a very, I'd never had that experience before. Um, right. And, and I'd never had experiences where I actually had to fear for my safety in certain public, public spaces and stuff like that. So, and even, even so I am, I, I joke that I'm like the 1% of, of, of transgender people. Like I still have a very, um, safe and secure and, and well-established life that is where I'm not in like tremendous danger. And I live in probably the most accepting place in, in the entire planet for LGBT people, which is Massachusetts. Mm. Um, but so, so I'm, I'm like the, I'm, I, I joke, I'm the tranny 1%, but, um, I still have an inkling now. And now I can, now when I look at other people's experiences, I can say, wow, you know, okay, I, I'm going to believe them and take them at face value when maybe before I might not have, and mm. I should have, um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to believe that their struggles are real and that there are times when they just, when they just don't know what to do and they feel the whole world's against them. And I have an inkling of what that feels like. So I think that has been reflective in my writing that I've taken some of the characters that aren't in such privileged situations and being able to represent them a lot better than I ever had before. 
Mm. So that was a really long answer. That's great. <laughs> and, and like, how are your readers like reacting to that? Are they noticing the shift? Any of them? Um, I hope not, to be honest. <laughs> I hope that I'm doing a good enough job with my storytelling that the characters are always behaving ways in ways that the characters should behave. Um, I, I, what I hope is that, well, I guess what I would hope is that there's, there are fewer instances of me screwing up when it comes to characters not being properly empathetic. So maybe they will notice that. Maybe they'll be like, you know what? You know, Mal's really actually getting these female characters better or getting these marginalized characters better than she ever has before. But mm. hopefully they don't, they don't feel like there's any sort of political shift or change in tone of my novels. I would feel that would be a mistake if, if that sort of thing became apparent. Because I, I want my novels to really... I've established this very large setting um, in Aeon 14. And I want to make sure that the characters, the setting hasn't changed. So the characters should be behaving the same in the setting, provided the characters are still, you know, representing the same people. So hopefully not. Mm. Um, although I might choose to pick some storylines now that I might not have before. And possibly because I feel better equipped to talk about those issues than I ever have before. Mm. That's, and you're still collaborating with other people in this universe. Yep. Yeah, so I have. What's been that been like? Um, it's been really good, actually. Um, there are seven co-authors in Aeon 14. One of them is my wife, who writes under a pen named Chris J. Pike. So she's in the mix cool. um, in there as well. Um, there's been uh, Jenny Green, who writes under J.J. Green, uh, Zen DiPietro, um, Lisa Richmond, James Aaron. I'm going to miss somebody when I do a list like this. It's inevitable. <laughs> um, You're at five. You're doing good. I'm at five. Who am I missing? Why am I missing Amy? someone? Amy isn't published yet, but Amy will become, Amy's will be coming out very soon. Amy, uh, A.K. Duboff. And, uh, oh, and um, T. Ayer is, is the last one. So those are all people that I've collaborated with. Um, and it's been, it's been a really great experience doing that, both for me and for them. The one of the things that I find that, that co-authors bring, like when I, when I was writing Aeon 14, what I realized is that, one, if I wanted to build this thing up and finish it before I die, I needed co-authors. And the other thing was that I can't, being just one person, I can't think of all the scenarios and situations and all of, all of the, the color and flavor that a very large universe would have all on my own. I need other people's perspectives and ideas mm. uh, to do that, to, to create a more, more accurate representation of, of what this future could be. So they've, they've really helped with that. And the other great thing too is every writer hits writer's block, even me, um, who can produce all these books. And so having somebody else come up with ideas and, and whatnot and be able to riff off of other people um, really helps a lot in mm. keeping things, things moving. We've, we've in some group sessions have come up with just amazing plots and storylines and interconnected stuff that would not have been possible if I'd been doing this alone. Cool. So, so does that mean like you kind of have a writer's room sometimes where all of you get together? And yeah, we do it. Uh, we do it in chat a lot. And then whenever we do get together in person, we talk about um, things because there's some, some scenarios just work better in person. So during a 20 books bag, as we had a number of sit downs, um, they were usually one-on-one, -on -one, but a couple of them were a little bit bigger where we, we talked about um, story and plot and how certain things are going to go together and interconnect and whatnot. And, um, and we try to, we try, and actually the great thing too, is two of the authors who are AM 14, who were not full-time before are now also going to be full-time too. So it's been a, a oh, really good cool. way to help launch other people into their careers as well. Yeah. And so I assume they're like, you make it sound like it's been pretty easy, but I assume it's not an easy button to have gotten that going and keep it going. No, it's, I mean, this is at this point, I mean, I've, I, up, up until 2017, I had, I worked full time, but even so, it's been the work of a decade to to get this to where it is. Um, 
I did a lot of um, work and research establishing my setting before I even wrote the first novel. I, I, I spent almost two years um, doing research mm. before, before I started writing. So there's, there was a lot of work there. And, and I kind of had it in my mind that I wanted to build this massive universe. So I wanted to make sure that, that I wouldn't, that, that I had a solid setting so I didn't accidentally introduce plot holes that would be sort of unrecoverable from. Mm. So I guess, you know, you're, it's kind of implied, but you know, tell me more about your aspirations for this universe. You said it's the work of a decade and clearly yeah. it's a, it feels like a life work it, that I, you're doing. It definitely will be. I, um, so I've always been a huge fan of history. And I've, I've loved studying history and researching history. And when I was younger, I, I, I studied mostly ancient history. But when I got a little bit older, I started studying World War II history. And mm. I actually came around a lot, by, a lot by playing different video games that took place in World War II. And I really became interested in the, the personal stories that, that exist in World War II. I feel like you could, a person could actually spend their entire life reading material about World War II and never finish. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a lot of so people. Much, <laughs> yeah, there's just so much that happens. So many stories, you know. And there, there are huge things, like I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the Bataan Death March that happened um, right at the beginning of World War, of, of at least of the United States' entry into World War II. Mm, no. That's when, um, so, so 12 hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan launched an attack on the Philippines. And there were, I believe, 20,000 American soldiers stationed in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there was 100,000 um, Filipino soldiers. And the, um, the, they got... They got pushed back by the Japanese onto the peninsula of Bataan, and they were actually commanded by MacArthur. He was had been retired, uh, living on, in the Philippines, and they got and the U.S. Uh, Navy, which was decimated in the Pacific, sent a, a PT cruiser to pick up um, MacArthur, um, who was actually stationed on the small island off of off of the the peninsula, Bataan Peninsula, and they they ferried him back off to the United States to take over the Pacific Fleet, and they sent a message to all the troops who at this point had basically like eaten all of the bugs on the peninsula, all the animals have been eaten and they were down mm. to like eating bugs. Like that's how, how long they've been there and how low in supplies they were. And most of them only had like a few bullets left and stuff like that. And they sent them the message to surrender. And I won't, I'll spare any listeners the gory details, but what the Chinese, what the Japanese did to the, the prisoners on uh, the, the prisoners of war is one of the greatest um, uh, human in recent times, I should say one of the greatest human atrocities of the 20th century. Hmm. Um, it's, it's horrific. And they, the things that they did, basically all of the soldiers were like, we should have either fired our last bullets at the Japanese or eaten them rather than go through what happened afterward. Um, but that's a story that no one knows about. And it's huge. It's, it's a story involving, you know, 120,000 people. Hmm. Um, and, and people barely know about it. And, this, and World War II is full of stories like that. So as I was reading more and more about these, I'm like, I want to try and tell um, a, a future, about a future war in space and have that much information in it that you could you could read about these books for years and still find like these amazing stories that were sort of tucked away about some sort of side conflict that happened or something like that and tell mm -hmm. the, the people's stories in all those situations so that's sort of what set me down this path and my goal now is to create the the largest most internally consistent science fiction universe ever made that's quite an aspiration <laughs> it is yes and so do you ever like doubt yourself in that process um, the only thing that will keep me from, from finishing this, achieving this goal is, is uh, a premature death. Mm. I will, I will do this. I don't doubt it at all. That's great. And so clearly, you know, like you're a full-time author now mm -hmm. and to do that requires a lot of readers who are into what you're doing. Yes. And, yes, it and, does. 
Yeah. And so can you talk about your, your readers, your relationship with your readers? Sure. I, um, I spend a lot of time actually um, interacting with my readers and uh, in a variety of different ways because I want to make sure that, that they, that they stay engaged with, with, uh, with me and the stories that, that uh, the AN14 team are all putting together. Um, I, I want to say that I have, there are about 25,000 people who have read um, a significant number of the AON 14 books. And there's about, I think about eight or 9,000 people who have read every single one of them. Wow. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a monstrous number, um, you know, compared to some other authors, but it's certainly enough to, to keep, to keep the lights on, um, which is good. Cause that's, that's, that's my main goal sort of just to keep things going. And then, and that number of people is, you know, is, is growing all the time. New people coming into the series, new people coming into the universe so that um, eventually it'll, you know, it's going to have the legs to become as big as I want it to become. Um, but the, the thing that one of some of the things I do to, to, to stay engaged with them is I, I mean, I have a newsletter like most other authors do. I have a really active Facebook group where um, I actually don't, I'm not the one doing most of the posting in the Facebook group anymore. Most of it actually is coming from the fans now, which is, mm. which is great. Mm -hmm. um, I do things like I, uh, I have a discord server where I chat with my, my fans and that's like a, like a server that originally was started for, for gaming, but is sort of a great way to, um, to interact with people. So we actually, we actually chat, we haven't done any voice chats yet, but we're going to probably be doing some of those soon. Mm -hmm. And, um, for authors that use Patreon, Discord's kind of neat because it ties in with Patreon. So you can, so certain patrons can get higher ranks and privileges and whatnot on your discord server. Mm. Um, which is a fun thing to do as well. So I like to sort of stay in, stay in touch with my readers in a lot of different ways. I do con lots of contests to give them signed copies of, of books um, and they can buy signed copies of the books as well. Um, so in many respects, it's mostly those, those standard things. But I think at least from, from I, I kind of thought for a while that, that a lot of authors do this, but my readers keep telling me that no other authors are, are ha hang out with them quite as much as I do. Mm. And they, and they clearly, benefit from that and like that yeah definitely well i think you know i mean i'm i also I, on top of writing and everything else i do i actually really love marketing um and i my prior career has involved a lot of work in marketing and you know and, and working looking at numbers and whatnot and there are a lot of books coming out these days there's possibly i mean based on the number of isbns being being assigned there are probably a three thousand books coming out a day um so it's very easy for your readers to get distracted um, and maybe possibly never remember to come back to your stories. So mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of what one has to do these days as an author is, is hold your reader's attention in some form. Um, and that's part of what I'm doing is I'm staying engaged and always talking about things. And to be honest, it's really easy for me to do that because I always have something new to talk with them about. It's not like I'm just sort of like rehashing, you know, previous information or, or drawing anything out. It's, there's, there's so many books coming out that we're always talking about new things and whatnot. So it, it works pretty well. Right. And so it's a, clearly a case of it works for you and mm -hmm. your circumstances are as slow here as 24 bucks right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, I imagine like you've learned a lot of lessons along the way, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. what to do, what not to do maybe. And like, do you still remember that early moment? Like when you basically had nobody interacting with you? Do you mean before I started selling well? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a really you, long, it was a you, long moment. It went from 2012 to middle of 2016. Right. And so like, how did you keep going in that time? And like, how did you make it spark? Um, I mean, I'm a really firm believer in not starting things you don't, you can't finish. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, um, 
once I started writing the first series I was writing, I, I was determined that I was going to finish it no matter what. And even when I was writing my third book, I'm like, you know what? No one, there may only be a hundred people that ever read this book, but I'm going to do the best job at this I can. So every single one of those hundred people think that was a good book. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and at that point I'd only planned on maybe having the series be five to seven books long, but I I was, I was going to complete it for sure. Um, and I sort of, and I sort of had to, I had to make peace with that. You know, I had to, I had to accept the fact that at that point that I might just be doing this for myself and no one else, Mm. but I'd always wanted to write books. And I'd always wanted to create a science fiction series. So I kind of felt like if I, if I go to my grave, never having done this, I'll, it'll be a thing I always wish I had done. Um, so that was, that was my early motivation was just to get it done. Um, and, and to, of course, to hope that people enjoyed it. And that was a big part of it too. Like I want to do a quality job because I want to have people enjoy it. So, I mean, I was, I probably, I spent more money on covers and edits than I ever made in those first few years. Mm. It was, it was, I wasn't in it to make any money. Um, but once I started selling well, I realized, I could actually make this my career um, and write a lot more books that way. And that, that sort of became its own motivation. And for me, really the money is, is a way for me to more track if, if I'm going to get, if I have the money exists as a way for me to, to predict whether or not I'll be able to keep doing this for the next X amount of months or years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really what's most important to me. It's, it's, it's more about just being able to keep doing this for the rest of my life than anything else. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And so, did you always, so you realized you were doing this for yourself, right? And there were those number of years where the results wouldn't necessarily, depending on your scorecard, um, bear out supporting right, exactly. what you were doing. But the most important part was this internal motivator. Mm-hmm. And so what was that like as you realized that, like, did you believe that maybe these these books weren't going to ever sell and like have that moment of like realizing, wait a minute, there's nothing yeah. wrong with these books or they have oh, where, where I thought there was something that I had done something wrong. And that's why yeah. they weren't selling. Yeah. Um, no, I, I had been involved in marketing long enough and, and selling things on the internet long enough to know that the internet is not an, if you build it, they will come sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I knew that, that there was, there was just some sort of like thing I had to do to sell my books. I just didn't know what it was then. And I assumed early on that it was just because I was indie. Mm. Um, Cause at that point I didn't know that there were like all these indies that were out there making bank. I just assumed that it was, you know, that, that I had, I had decided to go indie and that meant that I would, I would never make that much money off of my books and they would just have to be for me. I didn't realize that being indie was actually where the real money was. <laughs> um, that must've, that must've made it easier in some way. I could imagine you know? That's true. Yeah. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I, I had like some sort of external reason for why I wasn't doing well. I didn't have to really blame myself for it that much. Right. Um, and I also write a bit of a niche. I write, um, female led military science fiction with, with a lot of progressive themes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and most military science fiction these days, at least it's, it's different. It used to be different, but these days, most military science fiction is very, um, I don't, I don't like using the political spectrum words for these sorts of things, but it's, I mean, so much of the way people think these days is current is polarized by these two political parties and and the platforms mm-hmm. of the political parties that that if you like military science fiction you can't like progressive you can't like socially liberal things is what the thinking is mm-hmm. it actually turns out that's not true at all um but um but i think i i had also thought to myself that maybe it was the themes i was addressing that were were part of why i wasn't as popular as i was but as it turns out when i came out as transgender my readers who are probably half of them are white males who live in the Southern United States. 
um, my readers didn't didn't have an issue at all with me being transgender. They were, they actually applauded me. That's great. Yeah, it was it was like it was a real wow. Twenty nineteen is awesome moment. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you were you were at least intellectually prepared for the possibility that you wouldn't be able to keep selling books. Yeah. Yeah. And so like what lessons do you think you can take from that, that maybe other authors who are struggling right now, either at the beginning of their career or with their, you know, not showing up in authenticity, like, you know, I think, I mean, yeah, time savers or anything. <laughs> well, I guess you made a really good point in that in summer, it, because I didn't know that I could do better. Um, I didn't have a reason to really get down on myself. And I actually, I'd never really thought of that particular angle before, but you're right. In some ways I was really lucky that I, that I didn't have to worry about a, an additional reason to feel like a failure. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I, I totally get the chances are that if any authors are listening to this podcast, they're probably aware of the fact that some authors make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing it and they wonder why they can't make any money. And to be honest, there's a certain amount of lightning strike that comes down, that it comes down to. Um, I was actually doing a, uh, and, and a lot of times authors like myself, who talk about how to market yourself and how to sell, we, we kind of gloss over the fact that there were probably some, some strokes of luck that, that happened along the way. Um, and one of them for me was, I, um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't fully know. I mean, I, most of it was, was advertising, but I feel, like, I feel like I probably got some shares from some really good authors early on that helped a lot. And then also in early 2017, I had a box set that got a book bub. Mm-hmm. And then one month later, that box set went into prime reading. And for like 10 months, that box set was the number one, somewhere in the number one to number three of science fiction anthologies. Um, and it just sold like mad for a really, really long time. And it made, it may be, it made, it made on its own, like, um, like $180,000 over the course of, of three years. Um, wow. So yeah, it was, it, and then, and it also was a lead into the rest of my books. So, so that box set alone, like getting, getting this book bub and then getting into prime reading one way after the other was, was a really big part of this. I think I certainly, I think I, I, I had mastered the marketing I needed to do well enough that I, I think I would have been able to stay working as a full-time author, even if that hadn't happened. But boy, that really helped propel things up to the next level is, is getting that, that lightning strike. Right. Uh, so, so I kind of feel like so authors who, who feel like they're toiling away and it's always labor and it's always labor. Um, you know, sometimes you might get the people who are doing a lot better. You may have had some sort of thing like that happen. Um, so keep that in mind that it's, we're all, we're all sort of where we are because of things that have happened to us outside of our control. So there's, there's sort of that to lean on a little bit if you need to. Um, and I think the other thing too, is that there's, there's always going to be someone that you can look up to and say, wow, they're killing it. And I'm not compared to them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I look at some romance authors who are putting out two to three books a year and are making four to five times as much money as I'm making. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm a chump. Like, why am I working so hard to make this amount of money? And they're like, you know, for me writing two to three books a year is like the work of two months. I could be, ta- if I was them, I'd be taking 10 months off in the Caribbean, you know, and, and, and they're, they're spanking me. So it's, I mean, it's that old thing, you know, eyes on your own paper kind of thing. You're right. You'll, you'll, you'll do better if you stop looking around everybody else because you're, you're going to, you're no matter what, you'll find someone who's doing better than you. And if you just focus on, on them and I mean, I guess, there's, I guess it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you should actually be looking at the people that are doing better than you, but you should recognize they're always going to be there and you, you don't need to, your goal should not be to beat them. I think your, your goal should be to do the best you can in the situation that you're in. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah. to judge yourself by your own measuring stick. Yeah. It's challenging because if you start looking at people who are doing better than you, right, and let's say you get so far as learning some of their strategies and tactics, right, doesn't mean that it really applies to you at the stage of your career that you're in. Yeah, I I, um, I equate it to like say for example you had a had a car that had stalled out in the highway, um, but it's a small hill, and you you start pushing that car to go down the hill to pick up some speed. Mm-hmm. Um, the the ways that the things that you'll do to increase speed at that point, which is basically opening your door and maybe just pushing, would be a lot different to the things you do to to increase your speed when you're driving at seventy miles an hour already. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact. The things that you might do at 70 miles an hour versus might they might be detrimental if you do the wrong things. Like if you're going 70 miles an hour, you open your door and put your foot down on the highway to try and push, it's not gonna go very well for you. No. And then likewise, you know, when you, if your car is running and you 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 floor the gas pedal at 70 miles an hour, it's gonna speed you up. Whereas if um, at least on an older car, if your car wasn't running, you just flood the engine, you know. So the the tactics and the results you're gonna get can be very different depending on the stage that you're at. And 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 yeah, you something that someone who has, um, and that's actually something that authors need to pay a lot of attention to when, when bigger authors are giving advice, those bigger authors actually don't know unless they're doing a lot of consulting work and working with a lot of other authors hands-on to help authors at, at all levels. Those bigger authors actually don't know what the current tactics are to bootstrap someone from zero yep. anymore because this, the, the landscape is so much different. And I, I see it actually quite a bit. I see authors um, talking about, oh, well, you know, you don't need to do marketing at first. Just put your book out there and Amazon will start marketing it for you. Um, but that doesn't work when you're brand new because you don't have any followers on Amazon. Um, you don't have any followers on BookBub. So BookBub's not doing a release announcement for your book to anybody. Um, you know, no one's searching your name on Amazon. There's all these factors that that aren't at play at different stages. So yeah, you, you definitely have to really think about what, what other authors are doing and why it's working for them at their stage and before you start applying their tactics to yourself. Right, and that can occupy a lot of headspace it can, yeah. I mean, the funny thing too, still, is that the the number one advice that that works the best is work on the next book. Yeah. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, I suppose once you get about eighteen to twenty books, and and you're still really not getting anywhere, then it might be time to take a, a look at either the stories themselves or the marketing tactics, because there's probably something that could, you know, if the stories are good, then you can probably find some sort of marketing tactic to sell these eighteen books and make a profit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, I would. I, I can imagine like it would be tough to be toiling away for years and creating this backlist and wondering like is the market going to change so much that i'm not even going to be able to sell these books by the time i have a viable business model it's true yeah it's i mean this is not writing is not a game for for people looking to make any short-term successes it's i mean a lot of people look at like recently jill and i did a post where we announced that we even in just one of our our main kindle account we've crossed over a million dollars um, in revenue, and most of that's been over the last uh, three and a half years. And people look at that and they say, "Wow, that's amazing!" You know, and you did all that in three and a half years. And and like, yes, we did. But that also discounts the fact that Jill and I have been writing since we were ten years old, mm-hmm. um, and and really focused on indie publishing for both writing writing the books that that we indie published and then getting them out for eight years before we met with the type of success that allowed us to turn this into a, a full time career. Right, and so Actually, that's closer to ten years, to be honest. Yeah, so that overnight success, really, it sounds like it's coming back to that you were at it about seven years or so before it kind of sparked, which was very similar to the numbers I used to hear when I was in the music industry. Um, A lot of the things you were saying, I see the parallels. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you go to these professional conferences and network and nobody knew how to start somebody's career. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if, if we were all, if I was, if I was so good that um, I had it all nailed, I could pluck any decent writer off the street and turn them into a superstar. Right. But no one, no one can do that. And you see it in the music industry. You see it in the movie industry. You see it in the trad publishing industry. The majority of the, 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 the stuff that's produced loses money. Yeah. It's only, it's only the superstars. So yeah, no one really knows what the, what the, the lightning in the bottle combination is. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is really visibility. It's being in the right place at the right time. So I feel like that's sort of a message I get to authors. I know, I know it's not like super comforting, but I hopefully it's something. Yeah. You yeah. do have to have a feedback loop before you can know yeah. where you're at. I also think to a certain extent, like I, like I said, I was writing since I was 10 and I don't think I had the life experiences to produce works worth reading mm. until I was a lot older. Mm. And for me, it took me to being in my thirties to be mature enough to produce something that would be worth other people's time to read. And that could be a different age. Some people might have matured a lot faster than I did. Um, but I feel, I suspect that's probably true in a lot of industries too, that the message that you can produce, um, is a lot more useful when you're older, like right. the characters are richer. They're not one, they're not gonna be one dimensional characters. You're going to be able to tell a more interesting story with more nuance and stuff like that. So, and then what that really means is that your earlier years are practice to, to be able to get better and to produce that, that novel right. later on. It's going to be amazing. Well, and I suppose you're always older than somebody else, right? You, in that yeah. sense. I, I think about this like ladder where you're always two steps behind somebody and there's always somebody two steps behind you yep. in life. And perhaps balance is reaching out in both directions while owning where you're at. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that popped up for me while you were talking, I've been learning about in the last year a lot more, you know, paying a lot more attention is no matter how good you are um, at what you do and how valuable your message might be until you establish emotional resonance with somebody, um, they won't listen. Yes. I think that's really true. Um, and I've, I always say this in, in this actually resonates with kind of like what I say about blurbs is I say people, people relate to people. So when you write a book blurb, it's gotta be about the people. Um, more than anything else. And I think that's the same thing when you're trying to tell any sort of message, people are going to connect with other people, not with things mm. um, so much. Yeah. And, and I think also you have to, people have to believe that you have the experiences to be able to be authentic as well. Yeah. That, if that makes sense. Like if, like if I was talking about like years of life struggle and, and toil and whatnot, and I was, I was 21 years old, a lot of people look, yeah. look at that and say, well, you know, your version of years is like something I can, is such a short period of time. I can barely remember it. Um, so I think there is sort of a bit of a, a bit of a, a gravity you get to have once you've got a little bit more experience under your belt. Um, and that helps you create that emotional connection because people are more likely to believe like, okay, yeah, you have had all the experiences. You did go through a lot of, a lot of stuff to come out to, to arrive at where you are. So I think that's, um, I guess definitely part of it too. Yeah. And so you've been going and networking and going to fan conferences a lot mm -hmm. this past while. And there was something you were mentioning in one of your presentations about a lesson you had about giving introverts space. 
Oh, yeah. You know, and that really stuck out for me. And, and I'm glad I remembered because I want to, I want other people to hear the story. Sure. So I was, this was at Boston Comic Con, which I guess is now called Boston Fan Expo, but it's, it's the same, same thing. Um, I had a booth there and, and I actually treated it as a learning experience. I went into it trying to learn as much as I could about how to sell at this type of convention, how to interact with people. Um, and I'd done a lot of signings before. Um, you know, like where you're like a convention, a smaller author convention, and there's like usually like a signing tacked onto it. And, and then it's usually at a hotel, you know, in a ballroom or something, and people show up to, to browse books and to, um, and to buy books. But those types of conventions and signings seem to be a little bit different because what I realized is all of those folks um, that were coming in fully expected to be going to tables with authors standing behind them. Um, and to possibly have to interact with the authors. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they're, they, they sort of expected to do this sort of thing. Um, whereas a convention more like Comic-Con, people aren't really expecting to interact with, with the, the creator of the, of the product um, in such a way like they're, they're like they're going to buy used comic books or they're going to buy like Lego figurines or like old game cartridges. Like the people across me were selling, were selling all sorts of like selling games from and games and consoles from like all of history pretty much mm. um, or people selling t-shirts and stuff like that, which is a very different sort of browsing and purchasing experience. And, um, and so for them to, to approach a table that had a bunch of books on it and then a person standing behind it, a lot of them would, would just walk by because they didn't want to engage. And I could kind of tell by their bodily language and their facial expressions and whatnot that they, they didn't really want to engage. And at the same time um, I was in cosplay um, all the time too. Like I had like, um, I had like, uh, I was wearing outfits that kind of looked like futuristic sci-fi armor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the funny, actually there's two things that happened there. One people, one people thought I was just the booth babe, uh, which was <laughs> totally awesome. I took that as a compliment and something that terrible all at the same time. <laughs> but <laughs> but there were times where I was sort of just standing there and I would kind of zone out and I was like super still and people thought I was a, a statue and then I would move and I would scare the crap out of people, <laughs> um, which turned out to be a really fun diversion for me. <laughs> and so on, on the, on the final day on the Sunday, I decided I was actually going to do that for the entire day. So I sort of stood off to the side of my booth next to the table, um, basically standing completely still like I'm a statue. And then every now and then people would walk by and I lock eyes with them as they were staring at me and they would get freaked out. Um, but, and, and that actually worked in many ways to engage them because they would come and ask me what I'm doing and, and what's, what's going on and whatnot. But the other thing that I noticed is there were a lot more people who sort of exhibited some of the same introverted behavior, like where they were alone and they weren't really chatting with people around them and they were, you know, eyes down more often, um, would actually, a lot more of them would stop at the table and start looking at the books and pick them up and look at them and whatnot. And I realized two things. I realized that one, many times I was engaging with people before they picked up the book and looked at the back of the book, which of course is exactly what we would all do in bookstores, right? You'd see a book, you pick it up and you'd read it. I was engaging with them before I let them do that, which was bad. Um, and, and because I was doing that or engaging or saying hi, a lot of times these introverts would just leave before they, you know, before they would do that. But I guess it's basically the same thing. Um, and by being sort of standing off pretending to be a statue, I, I was less, I didn't want to, the first to start out because I didn't want to break character right away. Um, and then I realized that by me just not doing anything, sort of being still and off to the side, I was actually giving these people space to, to do more of what they wanted to do. And then if they did actually pick up a book and, and I could see that they, they were, they read the back and they still looked interested. Then I would engage with them and they were perfectly fine to talk with me. Whereas before that, that sort of behavior would actually send them away. Yeah. Um, so that, that Sunday was the shortest day of Boston comic con. And I made the most sales that day while pretending to be a statue. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it was yeah, really uh, interesting. Yeah, lesson yeah, what, when I heard that it, it was already at the top of my mind because you know, we have, well, I'm sure you do as well. We have these local art walks and 
So go into town and a lot of these artist studios are pretty small and the artist is there and you talk and just remember hanging out in the studio for a while and, you know, looking at paintings and other people would come in and the artist would just be hovering, right? You know, mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, can I help you? What are you, you know, like ready? Like, okay, they're going to buy something any moment now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it made me, and I was like, Boy, you know, it'd be really funny if we just got a bunch of authors together and hovered in our section, at the <laughs> bookstore, and did the same thing to people. Oh, that'd be hilarious. Just being Barnes Noble by the sci-fi section. Like, hey, yeah. what are you thinking about here? You know, what would you like to buy today? Yeah, you like get like these big high profile authors to hang out and annoy patrons. As soon as they pick up the book, like, oh, yeah, you really like that one. It's really good. That'd be hilarious. That would be like, and because authors, people don't know them that well, but most people wouldn't realize who they are. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, personally, I've had all these experiences. I've made these mistakes like in person before. Mm -hmm. And when you said that, I was like, oh, of course. Like, yeah. That's what people want. They want the freedom to browse and not be bothered, mm -hmm. you know. And it, it is difficult when you're in a, in a situation where it's a smaller booth and there's not too many places for you to go. Yeah. So I sort of, but you don't, and you don't want to seem disinterested either. Like I have a really important rule when I do cons and signings, I never sit down um, because I don't want people to feel like something else. I'm, Cause once you sit down, you start, you're on your phone, you mm. pull out your laptop. Um, and then you, then you look like you're doing something more important. Right. So, so it's sort of, so I, it was kind of neat that I figured out a way to do something that allowed me to stand up and be available, but not be in people's faces. Right. Yeah. I guess that's a tricky balance. It is. I don't know what the answer is for everybody because probably not everybody wants to pretend to be a statue for an entire day, but I thought it was amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. And so I guess final question for anybody who's at the beginning of this road and thinking about maybe getting into books or writing more seriously. Uh, you have any final words of wisdom? Sure. Um, people ask me all the time, sort of like what my tricks are for, for writing so many books and whatnot. And, and I guess the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, I, I write a lot of books because I'm in a situation where, um, you know, Jill, we only have one child and Jill is also works from home. She'll, she's also a writer and she also loves cooking and stuff like that. So Jill basically takes care of me a lot and there's a lot of things I don't have to do. But if I were in Jill's situation, you know, I might not have as much time to write. Mm. Um, and if I was in someone's situation who had three or four kids, um, and also had to work a part-time or full-time job, I would have a lot less time to write. So I really feel like people need to, to, to measure themselves by what is reasonable, or maybe you're caring for a sick relative or, you know, there could be all sorts of reasons why you, you don't have, like I have, I have 12 to 16 hours a day to write. Most people don't have anything close to that. Right. So don't look at my productivity and beat yourself up about it. Look at, look at what you can do in the time that you have available and then protect that time. Um, as much as you can to actually do writing because it's 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 important it's a it's a real career and and you should treat it as such and and make sure that everybody else around you understands that it should be treated as a real career as well and that and that you, sh you shouldn't be distracted and bothered and set clear boundaries in that respect um the other thing is that you need to figure out the best way for you to get a book done and for me personally what happened i used to write so that i would always go back and read the prior chapter and edit the prior chapter and whatnot but what I found is that if I didn't have a lot of time to write so often, I just, that's all I did yeah. is that I would go and read the prior chapter and edit it a little bit. And then maybe I wouldn't come back to writing till like the next day or two later. Um, and I would forget where I was or maybe even longer than a day or two. And I would go read that prior chapter again and I could just never get a book done. And there's a really big, 
power in getting a book done. You'll say like, I wrote this entire thing to beginning to end. The first time you do that, I, I still remember the first time I did it and I was like, wow, I can actually do this. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually write the words at the end and be at the end. So for me, what I found is that the best way thing for me to do is just to power through until the end, never look back, never, never look at what I wrote yesterday. Just every day I sit down and I write new words. Um, and I, and, and to do it every day, even if I'm only writing for 15 minutes, because it keeps it fresh in my mind. And that way, when I sit down the following day and the following day, I don't have to go back to reread to remember where I was. I just worked on it yesterday. I remember, remember where I was. Um, right. and that helps me get to the end. And so the old adage is that you can't edit a blank page. Um, and that's the whole idea is get the book done because then even if it's garbage and it, the first draft always is garbage, um, you'll be, at least you'll have something to work on. Whereas a blank page cannot be edited. You can't improve the blank page. You got to get something down. Um, some people, and I'm actually a little bit more like this now, now that I have a lot more time to write, I do a little bit better actually if I, if I sometimes go back and do reread. Um, and some people have a process, like I think it's Kevin J. Anderson, or maybe it's... Are you thinking of uh, Dean Wesley Smith with the Dean cycling? Smith, right. Another third, another three person, three name person. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He does the cycling thing where he sort of like scrubs through and then writes new and every day scrubs through and writes new. And that's of course because he has the time to do that every day to do a, to review whatever he wrote yesterday and then to write new things and to keep the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. um, and that allows him to, when he hits the end, he's got the book done. He doesn't have to go back and look at it again. Um, and that's sort of a process I'm a little bit closer to now. But I do feel like when you're first starting out, there's, there's a lot more power in getting to the end than there is in sort of rehashing something. And the other thing too is like a lot of times when I was a newer writer, I would make mistakes that would cause me to have to go back and rewrite vast swaths of the book. Right. So if I had been like scrubbing and, and going over and going over and polishing chapter three, and then later on had an idea that caused me to completely remove chapter three, it was sort of just a giant waste of time. Um, so I, so I, I think early on when you're just starting, I really recommend figuring out whatever tactics work for you to get to the end. Right. Um, and then the other thing is to find a, a sprint group if you're not familiar with the sprint group is it's when you find like a, a group of people that you, you give, like you have a word count or like, or a time count. You're like, okay, everybody's going from nine till nine 30. Um, and you all write for that amount of time. And at the end you report how many words you wrote. And mm -hmm. that sort of group accountability really helps to keep you focused. Cause our biggest um, enemy right now is distraction. It probably always was, but it seems worse now than ever before with, with the internet always at our hands, no matter where we are. And so that, that sort of group accountability thing works really well for, for getting it down. And what I find that most authors are eventually able to do is to get to um, a decent average, like around a thousand words an hour. And, and that comes back to my first thing I was talking about carving out your hours. If you can manage to carve out three hours a day to write, you could get 3000 words done a day mm -hmm. and that's a hundred thousand word novel in a month. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's entirely possible to, to get up to those numbers, even if you're working a full time job, even if you're just starting out and to be able to produce, and then maybe it takes you another month to edit that book, but you could actually conceivably create a book, um, you know, write six books a year, um, only working three hours a day. Yeah. Which is a pretty powerful thing to think about. Right. And yeah, so that, that first steps finding, like finding, creating the time, protecting it, and yep. then the value of finishing something so that you have trust that you can do it. Yeah. So probably finishing takes precedence over having something done well early I, on. I, I agree. Yeah, totally. And then we start looking for efficiencies so that we can do yeah. more of it. Absolutely. Like I, I kind of joke that, that now on average, I write the Bible three times a year. It's sort of a way to think about, <laughs> about the writing volume that I have. And once you've done, once you've written that many words, then 
you sort of know how to set up a scene. You know that at this point in the book, I need to introduce these things. I need to have this type of event happen early on to make sure that they're, you know, I don't have too many lulls and the readers are still enticed and I need to add a hook here and stuff like that. And that stuff just really comes to you naturally after a while. Mm-hmm. And, and that does create a lot of efficiencies that you, that you can, you can use to speed yourself up. So the more you do it, the faster you'll get just, just by doing it, just like anything else that the, the act of practicing it will, will cause you to get better. That's awesome. And so for people who want to find you, Mallory, on the internet, like where can they go? So my fiction is available at um, aeon14.com. That's A-E-O-N-14.com. That's where the the Aeon 14 universe lives. Um, And then my wife, Jill, and I also are doing, I mentioned are doing writing books to help authors. We've got our Facebook ads book is out. We have one coming out next book. Next week, it's about launching and how, how different ways to launch books. And we're addressing people that can write fast and how do you want to launch and people that can only be able to do one or two books a year and how they might want to launch um, and, and what strategies work for them. So that's coming out in February. And then we have a general marketing book coming out in May. And you can find out about those and pre-order them on thewritingwives.com. Great. That's awesome. Well, Mar- Mallory, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again. You bet. It's been fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.